Hello and welcome to the podcast of tech.eu. I am your host, Andrew Degler. In today's episode, we take a look back at this very eventful week. It's been an incredibly busy time for everyone. And also because of that, the news overview is actually going to be shorter than usual this time. The normal programming will resume next week. In the second part of the show, I will play you an interview with Keith Groves, the head of UK and EU at the fintech startup Plaid. Now let's have a quick look at the most important news stories of this week. Healthcare app Allen has raised 185 million euros in a Series D round, now bringing the company's valuation up to 1.4 billion euros. Founded in 2016, Allen provides insurance plans to companies ranging from startups to enterprises. The company offers a combination of insurance and personalized health care information, proactive care, care delivery, payment, and post-care. Allen currently covers approximately 9,400 companies in France, Belgium, and Spain, including the ones we all know, like WeWork and Deliveroo, just eat and so on and so forth, representing 155,000 members. Next up, French startup Ornicar has raised 100 million euros in funding. It's an interesting startup that I wanted to mention today. To quote TechCrunch's report, Ornicar prepares people for driving tests by providing online driver education courses and also lets those users organize in-person lessons with driving instructors. Also provides a booking system for taking their written and practical examinations and finally provides them with competitive rates for getting car insurance as new drivers. At the moment, Ornicar's driver education services are live in both France and Spain, but the insurance part is only offered in France. The company plans to use the funding to bring the insurance to Spain and also expand both to more unspecified markets. Another French company, mobility scale-up Blablacar, has raised a new funding round of 97 million euros. The round is structured as a convertible note. The company is mostly known for its ride-sharing platform, of course, but it also has a bus service and as a result of the acquisition of WeBus and also an online bus ticketing platform with the acquisition of Ukrainian startup Bus4. It is also going to add trains to its mobility marketplace later this year. Speaking of mobility, micromobility startup Dot, with headquarters in Paris and Amsterdam, has secured 85 million US dollars in a Series B funding round. The capital injection was co-led by Belgium-based Sofina and UK-based Astari. Currently, Dot operates a fleet of over 30,000 scooters in some 15 cities across Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, and Poland. Now the company plans to expand to unspecified new cities in the UK and Spain, as well as start rolling out its fleets of e-bikes. First announced in December 2020, those colorful crankshaft e-bikes were actually expected to launch in March this year, but now the rollout has been postponed into this summer. Next up, Revolut is reportedly looking for a new funding round that would value the company at over 10 billion US dollars. Sky News reports that, I quote, the digital lender is lining up FT Partners, the US-based fintech-focused investment bank, to advise it on a new equity raise that would take place after the summer. Helsinki-based VC firm Icebreaker has closed its second fund at 100 million euros and raised a separate 20 million euros that will be used to continue investments in existing portfolio companies. When it comes to stages, Icebreaker is really interesting. So uh, it says, I quote, no stage is too early for us to invest. And another quote, our community supports founders even before they know what they want to build or have a team, the quote ends. 
And another short one, UiPath has gone public, finally raising 1.34 billion US dollars. The share price rose 23% in the company's stock market debut on Wednesday. At the closing price, UiPath had a market value of 35.8 billion US dollars. So a real, really successful IPO for a European-born company in the US. Next up, a bit less of an uplifting story that also happened this week. The regime of the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, has supposedly made steps to shut down the local startup hub Imaguru in Minsk. This week, Imaguru's lease was cancelled for no apparent reason, forcing uh, the startup hub to basically cease all offline activities and operations. This development came a month after unidentified men wearing masks broke into Imaguru's office during an event. They blocked the exit, put young event attendees against against the wall and brought them to the police station. The issues Imaguru has run into are supposedly connected to its criticism of the Belarusian state cracking down on the countrywide protests against Lukashenko's regime over the past year. In the UK, the government is concerned about the acquisition of the chip designer ARM by the US-based hardware giant NVIDIA. According to a report by the BBC, Digital Secretary Oliver Dowden has now ordered the Competition and Markets Authority, that's the CMA, to begin a so-called Phase 1 investigation into the deal, which will decide whether a full Phase 2 investigation is necessary. If that will indeed be the case, an investigation like that could actually lead to the whole deal being blocked. The CMA now has until 30th of July to submit its findings to the Digital Secretary. The EU has proposed strict regulations on the use of artificial intelligence. I will quote from the New York Times story. A first-of-its-kind policy outlines how companies and governments can use a technology seen as one of the most significant but ethically fraught scientific breakthroughs in recent memory. The draft rules would set limits around the use of artificial intelligence in a range of activities, from self-driving cars to hiring decisions, bank lending, school enrollment selections, and the scoring of exams. It would also cover the use of artificial intelligence by law enforcement and court systems, areas considered high-risk because they could threaten people's safety or fundamental rights. Some uses would be banned altogether, including live facial recognition in public spaces, though there would be several exemptions for national security and other purposes. Now, it is time for our today's interview. Recently, I sat down with Keith Groves, the European face of the fintech company Plaid, and now I really wanted to play this conversation back for you. So if we can start maybe with yourself and then move uh, on to Plaid. So what's your journey been like and what's brought you to London? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Keith Gross. I'm the head of UK for Plaid. It's been a fantastic journey for me. So I joined Plaid about two years ago to lead the expansion to Europe. I was originally based in San Francisco, which is where Plaid is headquartered. And then I moved over here after just a few months as the first boots on the ground to open up our offices in London and Amsterdam. So it was one of those experiences, you know, where you walk off a plane with your, your suitcase and say, okay, time to find an office and build a company. And it's just been a fantastic startup ride from there. Prior to Plaid, I spent many years at Google, including working on internationalizing Google Wallet, which is where I got my introduction to the wonderful world of how broken financial infrastructure is and how much it needs to be fixed. And I spent my last couple of years there helping scale their hardware efforts with the Pixel phones and Google Home speakers, and then started my career as a, as a management consultant before that. But Plaid, for those who aren't familiar, is an open banking platform. And what that means is we connect to thousands of banks around the world in US, Canada, UK, and Europe. 
and then standardize that access, abstract away all the complexities and nuances into a single API so people can build great financial services experiences with that tool. So we're sort of the, uh, the tool provider for fintechs, and we power now more 80% of the largest fintechs in the US and are well on our way to doing that in Europe as well. Right. So uh, I'm not that well-versed in uh, the whole uh, fintech infrastructure sort of thing. So uh, one question that I had is uh, this. Uh, so we in Europe, we've got the PSD2 the, the directive, uh, which supposedly, as far as I understand it, kind of mandates the banks to sort of open up uh, their data to their customers. So the customers can decide what to do with it. So if that's the case, why do we even need Plaid and uh, that sort of uh, companies? Uh, why can't uh, your customers just to use the data from the banks directly? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I'll, I'll spend like 10 seconds explaining PSD2 in case yep. people aren't familiar as well. So PSD2 is the second payment services directive. So EU-wide legislation that was also adopted into law in the UK before Brexit. So it's part of the law in the UK as well. And what it does require is banks to open up their doors, right? You have to create APIs as a bank that allow users to both access their financial data around their payment accounts, but also to be able to send payments through those accounts. So both of those types of APIs uh, have to be available and they're called account information on the data side and payment initiation on the payment side. So this is all well and good. And the original intention was to be able to allow fintechs to plug directly into banks. Well, it turns out that actually exposing and managing APIs at scale is incredibly hard and incredibly engineering intensive. And so you actually need teams of engineers, large teams of engineers, if you're going to try and build this yourself. And it's really impossible to manage if you're going to try and build this yourself across multiple markets. So actually, it makes a ton of sense for most larger players to work with someone like Plaid who can manage building all these integrations, keeping them live, working with the bank developer teams on any issues that come up. And then we can do that at a cost that's very low cost versus hiring a bunch of engineers yourself for a fintech. So yes, theoretically, if you're a fintech focused on a particular market and you only need to connect to one or two banks, you can build it yourself and that might make sense. But if you're a company that has scale-up ambitions or you want to be multi-market, it will always make more cost-benefit sense for you to work with a partner like Plaid. Right. And by the way, why is it even called Plaid? Is there any particular reason for that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. The reason doesn't translate well to Europe, but Plaid is a pattern, uh, like a shirt or fabric pattern in the US. In fact, the shirt I'm wearing right now in the US, you call this Plaid shirt. And if you think about what it is, it's a lot of interconnecting lines. And what Plaid does is we serve as the connective tissue for fintech. We connect banks to fintechs. And so that was the, the original idea behind the name. But obviously, coming over here, it's pronounced played, and people don't think of it as a fabric or pattern. So the branding didn't quite translate when we moved across the Atlantic. <laughs> right. So what else is different in Europe uh, than uh, in the US, other than understanding of the name of the company? Oh, my goodness. Where to start? I mean, and I guess the, it's not just what's the difference between the US and Europe. It's like every market within Europe is different, right? And that's obvious when you talk to anyone who's European, but I think For people coming from other markets, they sometimes think of Europe as one thing, and it's definitely not. The biggest difference in terms of the space that we operate in in financial services is there is no open banking regulation in the U.S. Instead, there's this thing called Section 1033 of Dodd-Frank, which is creates a consumer data right. So consumers have the right to access their data, but there's no mandate around banks having to provide that access or what it should look like, or does it have to be an API? And so what Plaid did is we basically built open banking from a market-based perspective 
And actually the story of how Plaid got started is, is part of that, where the founders of Plaid were trying to build their own fintech app. They're trying to build a budgeting app to tell you, hey, you're spending way too much money at Starbucks. You should be going somewhere else. And they found out the hardest part about that was actually just connecting to banks so you could actually access transaction data. And then other fintechs are coming to them and saying, hey, your app sucks, but your infrastructure is amazing. Can we license it from you? And so in the classic Silicon Valley story, they pivoted to be B2B. They decided to build an API and basically license this infrastructure out for other fintechs. And over time, the little fintech startups that started building on Plaid grew into Venmo, Robinhood, Square Cash, like these massive fintechs. And so the market developed this demand for open banking in the US. In Europe, it's the complete opposite, right? Where banking is far more concentrated, you know, four to five banks in each market control 60 to 80%. In the US, you have thousands, tens of thousands of banks. So banking is much more concentrated here. And regulators forced opening up these APIs. So access in that sense was solved. And so what Plaid is doing is, is going market by market and helping abstract away all of these differences into a single API. So you can expand between the US and Europe and vice versa with a single connection without having to worry about all the differences in regulations and getting set up and the differences in the APIs. But it's, it's night and day in terms of how the markets operate. If that makes sense. Right. So who are your uh, European customers, like notable ones, let's say? Yeah. So I think I'd highlight a few here. One is one of the world's largest accounting platforms, so Sage, if people are familiar there. So we have a lot of fit with accounting use cases where it's still to this day, a lot of small businesses, especially or sole traders, are sending PDFs or pulling documents. Like All of that should be API and automatic and in the background. And that's what Plaid helps enable. Other examples of this are folks like Clio or Curve on the consumer-facing fintech side who offer fantastic new experiences for you to be able to track your expenses and manage your money across multiple cards and multiple bank accounts. And that's the type of thing that we really help enable here. But then we all go all the way down to really small startups. Like one of the more recent customers we just supported is this startup called Commentary Box, which supports local football teams and allows them to pay for their local season, like you know moms and dads to pay for their kids' soccer seasons using Plaid's open banking payments technology. So we really support everything from the biggest enterprise customers and tier one banks all the way down to a two-person company that's still, you know, in the garage type of vibe. And we really, we really value that in terms of, of what we focus on. We just want to help developers build great tools. Right. And I'm quite sure that I have heard this kind of pitch before. So what's the competition uh, like uh, for you in uh, in Europe and also in the US? Is it is it very different? Uh, yeah, I mean, both markets are competitive uh, and there are there are decent competitors. I think it's a different setup in Europe in the sense that because PSD2 opened up access, there are a lot more competitors and a lot more local competitors in each market. So almost every country you go to in Europe there's mm -hmm. some local competitor that specializes in open banking in that market. What there are very few of is pan-European or multi-market providers. And that's where Plaid is, is in a class of its own with players like Tink and TrueLayer and, and a handful of others. It's similar in the US, but there's less, you know, there's not state by state providers. There are a few providers in the US that we compete hard against. But I do think that generally open banking, similar to privacy, is a growing consumer awareness wave that's happening globally. So you're starting to see open banking as a concept start to pop up in almost every region and every country globally. Australia just launched this, Brazil is focusing on it, India has their own, and you're starting to see startups pop up in each of those markets. So I think it's gonna be a really interesting space for the next five to 10 years, because I do think 
this is going to be something that just becomes the norm over time. And we're in the very early days of what open banking will be. Right. And I was uh, before this interview, I was really interested in uh, hearing your perspective on European fintech effort, if you will, in general, because uh, this uh, uh, fintech industry is supposedly one of the few things in which Europe could lead the way in the world. Do you agree with this? And uh, what do you generally think what's going on around here? Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that's the case. I've been incredibly impressed with the quality of technology and the quality of products that have been launched in fintech in Europe. So the UK and London is the second biggest fintech market in the world outside of San Francisco. And I think it, it can continue to lead the way as well as some other amazing fintech ecosystems. You have Paris, you have Berlin. There are some great startups coming out of this. And I think the highlight examples I always give to people is The neobank applications and the super apps, I think, are far more developed in Europe than they are in the U.S. and other markets that I've been to. And I think because of regulation and the availability of tools like open banking, I think you're starting to see more and more innovative use cases come to market in places like Europe. I think the difficulty that Europe faces, and this has been, is, is not just fintech, it's sort of a historical trend generally for tech in Europe, is that There hasn't been as much late stage growth funding and fantastic exits for companies. So it's a harder funding environment, I think, in general for companies. But that's starting to change. And you're starting to see more and more VCs move over and pay attention to European tech. And I think the future is really bright for fintech in Europe. And I think you're going to start to see some really big winners emerge and go public, whether they're on the London Stock Exchange or elsewhere. And I think that's hopefully going to fuel more interest and more investment. Because I think that's the thing that's missing. It's not the tech. It's not the quality of product. It's the late stage funding to really have these scale-ups hit escape velocity. All eyes on Klarna then. Yeah, I mean, Klarna, it's an amazing story, right? What they've, what they've built. Certainly. And uh, you were talking about uh, hubs uh, for fintech in Europe, and you mentioned London and Paris and Berlin. But your office uh, is in London and the other is in Amsterdam. Uh, why did you choose it? I mean... I think it's great because I live in Netherlands. I think we are we are one of the best destinations for startups, but not everyone sees it this way. So why Amsterdam? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mention it because I want to keep the secret, right? Like everybody, don't come to Amsterdam. So Plaid can build an amazing, an amazing company here. Uh, I think Amsterdam is a fantastic fintech market, and it's it's also just an incredible tech market generally. I mean, it has amazing connectivity, right? It's the switchboard for the fiber optic cables throughout all of Europe multilingual. It's a place that everybody wants to move. So you have this amazing, diverse talent pool. I think it's a great place to, to build a tech company and especially to build an engineering base, which is exactly what Plaid is doing with our Amsterdam office. Right. So once again, when did you move to, to London? So I moved to London in March of 2019. So just exactly two years ago, basically. So you had a year to work uh, in the normal world, and then you had another year of working in the COVID and pandemic and uh, uh, lockdown world. Uh, can you compare these two years for me and uh, how, how things went uh, over, the, uh, over the past year? Oh my goodness. It's, it's, an, it's actually incredible how night and day they were, because w when you're in the early stages of getting something started, particularly where you have a company where multiple of your offices are globally spread out over many time zones. For me in 2019, I was traveling. But one, I was splitting my time between Amsterdam and London when I was in Europe because I was trying to set up both offices. But two, I was traveling back to San Francisco, Salt Lake City, and New York, our other US offices on a constant basis. I actually traveled, I think, 180 out of the 365 days. Like every two or three days, I was on a plane in 2019. Fast forward to 2020, and it's the 
exact opposite, right? We shut down our offices in March, uh, you know, almost exactly a year ago today. We still haven't reopened them. Everybody's been working from home. I haven't gotten on a plane for work since February or January of 2020. And what that has allowed is me to really focus on growing the team and figuring out remote work and growing the business here in London. But I, I can't imagine two more different years for me personally. And I think what's going to be interesting is to see how trends like that change coming back into the normal world. Because I think for me, you know, the idea of flying to a different office for every meeting or to a different business to talk to a customer doesn't make as much sense as it did before COVID. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of things where business travel is probably never going to be the same again. It probably shouldn't ever be the same again. On the other hand, I'm, I'm pretty excited to go see my friends in Amsterdam for, for Plaid and, and go see them face to face again and go visit the local cafes and whatnot. But I, I think it's going to be a very different world coming out the other side of, of COVID. You know, I think everyone in, in the business world has felt that difference. All right. And how big is your team now, both in London and in Amsterdam? So we're about 50 people now, all told, focusing on Europe. And what we did, I think, is quite interesting and something that I recommend to folks considering international expansion in terms of other companies is we created a completely separate business unit, essentially, within Plat. So full stack team, dedicated legal operations, engineering, product, sales, go to market, and just created a startup within a startup. Um, and that's allowed us to move really fast. But that's the size of our team currently. And I'm roughly trying to double that this year. So lots of time in interviews, which is great. Whom are you looking for? Uh, lots of engineers, particularly in Amsterdam. So if anyone listening to this is an engineer and either in Amsterdam or wants to move to Amsterdam, get in touch, please. <laughs> Great. Uh, back to back to the pandemic world, though. What do you think the effect of uh, this uh, was on the fintech industry uh, in general? I would even expand it beyond the fintech industry to the financial services industry. You had right. whole swaths of people that were still used to banking in person and you know, going to cash their checks or were living cash-based economies or you know had never used a mobile banking app, locked up at home. Your, fin your personal finances changed overnight for many people, right? Tons of people were furloughed or had to seek government loans, you name it. And they had to manage all of this from their mobile devices or their laptop. And so you saw this incredible surge in the importance of fintech and financial services and in the need for really great technology if you're a fintech or a financial services company. So whether you were a tier one bank or a startup just getting started, the importance of having a really high quality application, getting that in the hands of your users, it just went through the roof. Um, and you also saw, I think, the need for infrastructure developments in certain countries as well. The thing I like to highlight here is the, the example in the US of when they rolled out the payroll protection program, which is equivalent to the Cybels loans in the UK, but government loans to, to small businesses. Actually, the hardest part wasn't getting the loans approved. It was actually getting that money in the hands of small businesses. And you had physical checks being mailed and going to the wrong address. And it's like, it's amazing that, you know, 2021, that that is how we're distributing funds. And that just shows you how much needs to change around financial infrastructure. So I think it was both great for, for technology and for fintech in the sense that it really showed its importance, but it also highlighted that there's a long way to go to make things better and make sure that uh, we actually have the systems and infrastructure in, space, in place to support us because this might not be the, the last time we face something like this as humanity in the next 10 years. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to uh, cover uh, one more topic with you as an expert in uh, fintech and financial services uh, infrastructure. So uh, recently uh, we ran on uh, TechU a piece about embedded finance in which uh, the author was arguing that this is indeed the future of uh, financial services and the apps and the banks and, and, and all that. So can you talk to me about it? Can you tell me like how you see the embedded uh, finance concept and uh, where do you see it's coming to in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the easiest way that I describe what embedded finance is, is it's taking financial services to meet people where they already are. What I mean by this is if you have applications that are heavily used by people today, whether it's a social media app or a, you name it, it's building financial services into those applications. I think a really clear and classic example here is you have a lot of gig economy workers now, right? Like delivery or just eat drivers, Uber drivers, they're all getting paid and managing their finances through these apps. These apps should be offering them checking accounts, current accounts, savings accounts, pensions, and all of that should be available for them in this application. And what embedded finance is, is you now have the tools through open banking and open banking payments to be able to build these experiences really easily into your applications, even if you're not a financial services expert. And so what we're starting to see is tons of interest from large tech companies and large providers of applications generally in Europe, the UK, and, and the US that are interested in adding financial services to their offering for users. And so I do think it is just early days for this, and you're going to start to see that happen more and more. And the, the way I also think about this is your, your bank account as a user is going to start to become more like a routing hub, right? As opposed to being, this is the one place I go to manage all of my finances, as it has been historically you're going to be connecting that to all sorts of applications and services and moving towards automated finances where you know your paycheck might get automatically split up and part of it invested and part of it put in savings and part of it paying off debt and that is going to become more and more automated and easy and hopefully help people live healthier financial lives so i would agree that we're we're in the early days for embedded finance and you're going to start to see financial services pop up all over the place in the coming years so what you're describing, uh, what would happen to the banks in, if this happens, is uh, something that I think in the telecom world is usually ca called becoming the dump pipe. And uh, the companies uh, that uh, are in danger of becoming the dump pipes, they are usually not very happy about it. So what uh, what happens uh, with the banks in this case? I don't think the banks are uh, really liking uh, this, uh, this sort of idea of people not looking at them as the main place for uh, their finance needs. So what do what are the banks doing with it? And what could do you think they do in order to avoid uh, this uh, fate? Yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting question. And I think it very much depends on the bank. Because I think there are some banks that are looking at this and saying, I'm really scared about this future. And I'm dragging my feet. And I'm going to lobby policymakers and do everything I can to avoid it. But you also have banks that are starting to recognize this as a path and actually build their own embedded financial services offerings and start to open up their own APIs and actually go above and beyond what's mandated under PSD2. And so I think you're going to start to see this bifurcation of the innovative forward-leaning forward traditional financial institutions actually started to transform themselves to meet this new market demand. And then you're going to have some others that are going to really hold back and they're going to probably struggle more in the long run. So I think the banks that are starting to see where this is headed and lean into it there's still plenty of opportunity for them to help provide these services for their users and still be a really important part of the ecosystem, even in an embedded finance world. 
And for the companies, uh, like you mentioned, for example, Deliveroo or uh, Just Eat or any other companies that would want to add these uh, sort of things to their apps, how would you see them solving the trust issues? I, because like it's really a a really foreign idea for so many people, myself included, to have my uh, financial uh, financial stuff being in an app that is not actually a bank or not even a financial app, but something totally different. So, how do you how do you make people trust uh, this uh, this kind of thing? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think there's there's two different things you need to think about there in terms of trust. One is, in some cases, the trust is actually going to come from this application or this service has already built trust with its users, right? So like in the delivery example, I trust it to deliver my burger within 20 minutes. And like it has a good reputation with me as a user and I understand it. So I might extend that trust into new services. But on the embedded finance side, trust is about two or three things here. One is you have to educate the user. So it's building flows and examples where you're making very clear to an end user, what are you doing here? Where is your data going? How is it safe? Why should I trust this? And then it's also providing repetitive experiences of success and building trust over time. Trust doesn't happen overnight. It's going to take years for trust to build up in a lot of these cases. But think about, I think a great example here is thinking about the card networks. And I think there are also going to be people that face a lot of changes in this open banking world because open banking payments is going to be a better payment method than cards in the future. But if you think about what they've done, right? They've built up this trust over years and years of users using cards and saying, okay, I'd see a, a Visa symbol or MasterCard symbol. I know what that means. I trust it. You're going to see the same thing happen in embedded services through providers like Plaid and others, where over time, users will start to see these services in other applications and recognize, oh, okay, I actually know this company. I know what they're doing. And even though it's showing up in this place, I understand and trust what that means. And so it's, I think it's just going to take time there in education. Right. So is this something you're also busy with, educating customers, educating like end users? Well, 100% whether it's through thought leadership, work that we do on our blogs, but actually our user experience itself, where we are very clear, like, here's what you're giving us permission for, here's who we are, like building those type of user experiences where you're very front and center with the user about what's happening. That's something that we really trust ourselves on. And we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of users going through our flows every day. And we're constantly focused on making sure we're educating and providing the best possible experience because that leads to the highest possible conversion and the best experience for our customers as well, and the end user. So it's all, I mean, all incentives are aligned in that sense. Right. Okay, last question. I always sort of think in this direction uh, lately, just when I see a company that is a platform and that provides infrastructure uh, for uh, for other companies to provide some services to end users, what often happens is when you as a platform, when you have so many customers and you see what things are being offered, what things are working, what things are not working, there is always I think a pretty big temptation to also launch something for end customers and users, just using this knowledge of what works and what uh, what doesn't. Is this something that Plat is thinking about? Is this something that you think is uh, a good thing to do in general? Any any particular takes on this? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think you've seen some examples of this in more consumer tech, but I don't think it actually necessarily makes a lot of sense here. Like think about ourselves or other payment platform providers. Again, think about card networks or Stripes or Plaids. What we do is we provide tools that other companies use to serve their users. And I think that will always be our primary focus. 
And we want to be a neutral platform versus try and compete with our own customers. And I think, frankly, what we're really good at is providing these API-based tools and services and systems. We don't want to build a consumer-facing app. I think what we should do is build a consumer relationship, but I don't think we, we want to go down that road. I don't think it necessarily makes sense. So while it might make sense for some platforms, I think for us, it makes a lot more sense to provide the best tools that we can and let others who are better and more specialized focus on building the end user applications themselves. Right. Understood. Now, Keith, that was it for my questions. Thank you so much. If you want something to add to this conversation, please go ahead. Do it now. Uh, only thing to add is I think uh, would encourage people to read up on open banking. I think it's going to be really important for the future. And if you're building anything interesting and want to talk more about it, go to plaid.com and we'd, we'd love to chat. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. And uh, good luck with everything you're doing in Europe with Plaid and hope to meet you soon in person at a conference or elsewhere. Me too. Thanks for having me. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, do follow us today wherever you listen to your podcast. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Our audio engineering is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are very welcome. Please do send them to podcast at tech.eu. This was TechEU Podcast. I am Andrew Degler, and I will talk to you again next week. For now, take care and enjoy the weekend. Bye-bye.